0: Welcome to Drinks at the Doll, Episode 49, Season 4 Review, Big Bads and Themes. Listening to Drinks at the Doll, a podcast waystation for Lost Girl fans. I'm your host Stephanie, and we are continuing with our season four review. This is part three. You can listen to part one at drinksatthedoll.com/slash forty seven. In part one, we discussed Beau's character arc. In part two, which you can find at drinksatthedoll.com/slash forty eight, we discussed the character arcs for the other main characters. And in this part, we are discussing the big bads and the themes of the season. Our guest was Melanie Killingsworth, who is a writer and filmmaker out of Portland, Oregon. She blogs about film and television over at melsbells.wordpress.com. That's M-E-H-L-S-B-E-L-L-S, melsbells.wordpress.com. And she's also over at TVkeela.com. So we are going to be talking about the, the big bads of, the, of season four, including Rainer. He was kind of an ambiguous big bad, but we included him in this section, as well as the themes. But first we're going to give sort of our general our general thoughts of the season as a whole.
1: Uh, for me, Lost Girls Season 4, it wasn't neutral. It was just some things were good, some things were not so good, in my opinion. So it was kind of like things I really liked. Oh, what a shocker. Docubus, Docubus, Docubus Kiss at the end. Kenzie's arc. I really loved Lauren's arc. Uh, in becoming more independent. Um, wasn't really a fan of Bo's arc and everything that happened with Rainer, but I loved how she came back to herself at the end in the last episode. But I think because it was so overly complex with the Wanderer and finding out who Rainer was and his role in the whole thing, I think the writing just suffered there and made Bo the anti hero a bit, and it's really difficult to maintain. Audience and interest and engage them. When too much of that happens, and that's what happened, in my opinion, the acting was top notch, though, and everything. Uh, so I think sometimes just the script suffered from, I think, too many ideas getting thrown in the, b- in with the plot and just going, hey, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this new thing, let's try not revealing this. You know, it was a long reveal for the Wanderer, and it just wasn't as satisfactory as it could have been. So overall, it was just. Some things I really loved, like 407, and that was a big Lauren episode, and some things I didn't really love. I loved the last episode, though, and I, you know, I think the important thing is, is I really loved where the season ended unexpectedly with Kenzie's sacrifice, and uh, seeing how that will go through into season 5, so it made me really excited for season 5. So, onward and upward.
2: I feel like almost. All of the episodes were very good individually. But when you look at the story they were trying to tell as a whole, it's a bit disjointed. There were a couple of the episodes I wasn't a huge fan, like I was a middling fan of. And there were a couple episodes that I thought were just some of the best things the show has ever done. But when you look at the story they were trying to tell as a whole, it's too disjointed.
3: I actually really agree with Melanie. I mean, I. I... Liked a lot of the episodes, like I really liked them. In case you couldn't tell from my constantly talking about how much I was enjoying the season, but yeah, I think overall the season-long arc didn't play out. I don't know, it didn't play out remotely like I was expecting it to, which is my issue. But I, I think they did have some issues, pacing-wise, maybe. I mean, especially that I think was the the biggest issue, you know, to me, more stuff needed to be revealed sooner or revealed more clearly, perhaps. Cause you know, we still don't really know what the handprint was. The, the mark, which apparently now belongs to Pyripus and not Rainer, <laughs> you know, and we don't know if, Rainer was a patsy, or if he's some dual personality, whatever. Like, there there are questions. There are too many questions still that I have, apparently.
0: No, I agree with both of you. Like, if I look back individually at the episodes, I really liked Slashed Love almost every single episode. Even a couple of the episodes where Because I kept thinking, well, I like the season as a whole, generally up until the end of of 409, where they introduce Rayner. I'm like, no, but then I really like the Lauren Dyson-Kenzie plot in Waves. And I'm like, well, but then I actually kind of like the Kenzie stuff that's in End of the Line and seeing Acacia again. So I I realized that I can't just like, I thought I could cut it off and just be like, I didn't like it once they kind of revealed the Rainer dud, but that's not true. So yeah, it's like the individual episodes, a lot of them I really like slash love, but the general overall Plot, eh, not so much. I so I, I don't know. That's just my two cents. I feel like what really killed it for a lot of people was the execution of the the season long story arc.
3: And I do think that a lot of the characters had really strong story arcs for the season. I mean, Lauren especially had a really, you know, detailed, thought out season long arc, and you know, so that is good. Two, but yeah, the the mythology aspect, show mythology, you know, the the wanderer stuff, basically. His um.
2: If I had to sum it up, I would say that the whole season felt like Spider-Man three, the third movie, and the it it's exactly how it feels. There's way too much of a good thing, too many villains going too many different directions, too many like, it's just. Every Most of the critics agreed that the problem with Spider-Man 3 was the way that they tried to fit too many villains and too many plot lines and too many things in. And all of those things were fine, but didn't have the room to be properly executed and the room to properly breathe and the room to do all the things that they should have done, especially considering their place in the whole universe. And that, to me, kind of sums up Lost Girl 4. Yeah. Not, I'm, not, I, I'm not talking quality, because... Whew.
3: <laughs> yeah. Fair enough.
2: Yeah,
0: and and just to to quickly uh, include some of the listener feedback that we got, we, we you know Amy mentioned said she she enjoyed season four on the whole, but some of the storylines just didn't click for her. Jess said something similar. I definitely had issues with the season. Had some really great episodes and some good character moments, but as a whole, I found it really disjointed. Brian said season four of season, of Lost Girl to me as a whole was by far the weakest and most poorly executed season of Lost Girl to date. So. There's a more harsh little review there. Beth said, messy, we lost Lost Girl, lack of continuity. Darkrat says, I like the show, tried something different this season, though I definitely thought that the results varied from episode to episode. So definitely, like I said, fans were kind of disappointed in in season four, especially as a whole. But it it sounds like even the people who, who commented really enjoyed a lot of the individual episodes. So moving on to the big bads. We've, we've talked a bit about the Wanderer and the, and Rainer storyline previously when we talked about Bo, but, uh, talking about it here more specific to, to Rainer, I think the thing that really, this was a big frustration for a lot of fans. You think? Right. This is one of the biggest things I see complained about online in regards to season four is the Wanderer storyline. And a, the majority of people seem to think it was a big, dud. I have never seen anybody online say, hey, that Wonder storyline, that was great. <laughs> right. I love that. I have not seen anybody say that. <laughs> I wish it went
3: on for six more episodes.
0: <laughs> I
1: wish it went on for six more seasons. Yay.
0: Yeah. And I think, like, like Chris alluded to, I think one of the things that really made it fall flat for people was the really long and drawn out reveal. And I don't... And here's just my two cents on it. I think they could have gotten away with a, with a drawn-out reveal had the Wanderer been like this big evil, which then Bo had to piece together these clues that she had sent herself in order to defeat. That might have worked out okay. But the fact that it was this long, drawn-out reveal, and then it turns out to be this guy who's not portrayed as really all that bad, but and you don't really know what's going on between the two of them, I think that's why it didn't really work, personally.
3: Yeah, I mean, Rainer's pretty much a red herring. Yeah, Rainier was a good... I, I just think...
1: I think the writers kind of wrote themselves into a corner of it. They had this build-up throughout Season 3 of The Wanderer, alluded it to being Bo's dad, and had the slow build-up, and then just said, okay, let's put something unexpected in there, and have it drive a wedge between Bo and the main characters, and... Yeah, and you know we were all theorizing: is it a whammy? Is it you know Bo has to be under some kind of spell? But it just didn't work with anybody because, as we've mentioned before, Rainer, when he finally appears, he's not. You know, he's in how many episodes before he dies, and we just don't care about him. We don't. We we are not invested in him. I don't think the whole last episode. I think for me it was emotionally with Beau coming back to herself and realizing who her heart is, who her family and friends are. I don't think that would have had as much emotional impact had she not had that separation from them with Raynor. I think that was the only purpose Raynor served. Otherwise, I really you know, wasn't invested in the character, didn't really understand a lot of the you know, mythology. We still don't have all the answers. Usually I'm not one to criticize the writing of the show, but I'm trying to draw constructive criticism here as to why it just fell flat for me.
0: So what do you think, Mel, about specifically kind of the the length of time that they took to to reveal Rayner?
2: So there's a lot going on. I think the fact that we got Tamsin saying at the end that that's not the Wanderer, that's not the person who hired her, I think that has to come into play somewhere. A. I think that they really needed to artificially construct a separation between Bo and her friends, and that's the way he used it, and therefore he got drawn out too far. B. Uh, I think that the show has a tendency to tease its reveals uh, until the actual act of teasing has kind of lost all meaning. And I think that May have lent itself to this as well, definitely, uh but I think you can see that even in season one, how it kind of teased that whole blood King thing out and out and out, and it happened in season two, how it te- granted season two had the artificial extension and but how it teased the garuda out and out and out, and it happened in season three and it happened in season four. I think that's just going to be a nature of the show. I also think that in season four, the show fully embraced its constant parallels to the show Lost and decided that it really was just not going to end up explaining a lot of things, and that also kind of plays into it, like, hey, all this is going to happen, and there's these, like, millions of other subshoots that are just, like, it's just going to exist, and there you go, you're not necessarily going to get all the answers, and we're going to be kind of that kind of modern Lost heroes, etc. show. So, I don't know, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I think they also felt the need to uh, hedge their bets with Raynor as an actual viable sexual partner. Whether because it felt like a whammy and they didn't want it to be too much like Bo was, you know, having sex under the influence of this guy and that would be creepy. Or because they didn't want to upset any of the fans of any of the other three, four, eight main, however many ships there are with people in Bo, um, and so they didn't want it to be like hyper-serious, you know, between Bo. For whatever reason, they really sexually hedged their bets um, with making him a viable, real intense sexual partner. All of those things combined made the plot line underwhelming. However, caveat, Melanie still feels that there is a hanging plot thread with with Rayner and the Wanderer not being the same, that it may be an alter ego of some sort that shows up, and Melanie would be incredibly gratified if that were to happen. She would feel that this whole storyline had been worthwhile.
0: So much so that Melanie refers to herself in the third person when she's talking about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep, it just kind of happened and then I went with it. Because if you change, if you change tense mid-sentence, then that's just m- even more confusing.
0: But yeah, because I feel like there was a lot of confusion in fandom about what Bo saw in Raynor. They're kind of like, why is this guy here? And I almost feel like they could have made Bo and Rainer, or Raynor work as a temporary distraction for Bo. I think they could have almost made that work had they not had to condense it into like half an episode in flashbacks. Because if they had made more clear that Bo is feeling really like frustrated and lost in regards to her relationships with, with Dyson and and Lauren and that being a big reason of what drew her to Raynor. I think that maybe could have worked because here comes this guy who has been wronged in Bo's eyes and that's a big appeal for Bo. She doesn't like injustice. She likes helping people. She especially likes helping people with whom she has an intimate relationship. And so I feel like it almost could have worked a little, worked okay if they'd put a little more time into it. But but maybe
2: just maybe just it just needed to me. come sooner. Yeah. I feel like if it had happened if that had happened in season three we might have cared. Right. Like that sounds really harsh, but when it happens in season or in in episode nine, we're like, that's it? But if that exact same thing had happened in season three, we may have been more motivated by it.
3: Or even earlier in this season, I think.
2: Right. I meant episode three of this season. I don't know. Oh, okay. Okay. Right, because I feel like if that was going to be the
0: reveal that Raynor was not Beau's father, wasn't wasn't sort of this thing that we were expecting it to be, and that had been revealed in it, really early in season four, maybe the whole Raynor thing wouldn't have felt like this big lead up to to nothing and a huge letdown. It's still, it still might have been a letdown, but I think less of one.
3: Well, and I think TV audiences in general, and especially fandom audience, um, not fandom audiences, but but like genre audiences, are extremely resistant to new characters. Don't you think that's generally true? I mean, there are ways to do it that the audience will accept them. They were. I'm su- Tamsin. I was gonna say. Yeah, I perfect example. I'm a little surprised that Tamsin was as quickly accepted as she was. But I think they they did that again in a way where there was al- already an automatic place for because since they made her Dyson's partner, you know? But since Raynor is brought in specifically to be with Beau, and that they'd been teasing it out as he was this sort of evil, nefarious, shadowy presence without actually being there the whole time, and then it shows up and, and, like, no, he's some hunky dude who apparently is Bo's destiny, and what? I mean, that's sort of, like, that's the way to introduce a character to get the audience to hate him.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think it kind of boils down to Tamsin struts onto the screen, knocks Dyson out, kisses him, struts off, and everyone goes, oh, and we meet Raynor with a mask on while he's welding. And he's like another,
0: he's very directly shoved into the whole possible love interest for Bo type of thing. Whereas Tamsin, that took a little while before it became sort of a, oh, maybe. Maybe. Well, that's what I'm saying. Whereas Rainer just came in and was like, oh, he's my destiny. What? <laughs> <laughs> Four and a half se- or three and a half seasons they've been saying this other thing and suddenly this guy's my destiny. What? Well, so.
1: especially when but Bo is still expressing so much concern and love for equally for both Dyson and Lauren in the same episode. Then you can't come with me. I don't want you guys to get hurt. And then, oh, by the way, (laughs) so yeah,
3: it's the whammy, Annie. It's
1: not, but there was no whammy. That's what was so frustrating.
0: I think that is still a question people people have: is was
3: there a whammy? She had a glowing handprint on her collarbone. There's something going on.
0: I think the writers are hedging their bets a
3: little bit with that. Well, sure. I mean, <laughs>
1: Uh yeah,
3: that's they do that a lot.
1: Yeah, it's like I love you, show. I love you, writers. But I kind of hope. I, I think there's in no way they missed the feedback, the very vocal feedback about the character of Rainer and about the Wanderer storyline this season, and they might kind of go, okay. we'll hedge our bets in a slightly different direction next year.
0: But going back to what Mel was saying, do we have the whole story? I kind of am in the same boat. I kind of wonder if we do. And especially if we look at the flashbacks, what we see of her, of Bo on the train in, in Sleeping Beauty School, the flashbacks that we see in of all the gin joints, those to me don't entirely line up with what the flashbacks that we get in Waves and so I think the writers could very easily, if they wanted to, bring back the, well, maybe not bring back Rainer as a character, but turn what we thought we knew about Rainer on its head and, and have him actually be kind of a nefarious guy.
1: Eh, he's dead. I, I say it's done, but that's just me.
0: Because we also have the book that Lauren found in the Dark Hives, you that's know, calling true. him Betrayer of All and and this and that. And somebody you know, it was like, oh, well, Trick could have written that, you know, history is written by the victors, but Trick wrote him out of history. So why write him as evil? I mean, like, I guess you could explain it away.
3: justify but. the fact that if it ever got written back, I mean, this could just be what had been written before he wrote him out. You know what I mean? It's possible. So I'm I'm not saying it was necessarily Trick, but it could have been somebody... This you is know, like you know.
2: Doctor Who level time travel revision, right here. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I, I get it. It's possible, but at the same time, you know that that idea, of betrayer of all, betrayer of the Fae, I don't know that we necessarily see him do that. I don't in season four, so it almost feels like a setup to come back to the character and and explore that idea of him being the betrayer of the Fae.
3: I don't know. I think they could, because obviously. Obviously, they can, but I do think it's sufficiently justified in the sense that maybe that's how he was being portrayed by Trick's side of things, you know, since Trick so clearly hated him, you know?
2: Seriously, guys, it's like the Cupid and Psyche myth. Come on. He's got an alter ego which is really super terrible. And when he died, he was sorry that his alter ego had caused all of these other terrible things, i.e. the Wanderer, which Trick may or may not have created either from himself or from Raynor or from a combination of the two when he imprisoned him using his blood in the first place the end.
3: But that's not taking into account the fact that we know Peripus is involved somehow.
2: He can still be involved somewhere in that whole mix. He could be manipulating Raynor. He could be another alter ego. He could be... I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm wildly throwing theories at the wall to see what sticks, but I really, I really have held the alter ego theory for almost the whole season. So I'm sticking with that sinking ship. Fair enough. Yeah,
0: the thing about Pirapus being the real wanderer, the thing, the the moment that is still not explained to me by any of the theories that I've heard is that we know Tamsin was hired by somebody after Raynor became the Wanderer,
2: it is insinuated. The Wanderer is the part of him that can escape the train, that's what my theory says. As a projection or as an whether it projects or possesses somebody or somehow if if my theory were to hold that's the part of my theory, that his alter ego or his projection, whichever can escape the train.
0: Okay. Because Pyripus seems to be trapped in hell. Like he had to have Right have them bond together in order to open the gates to hell for him to emerge. So both Raynor and Piripus seem to be trapped other places. So them hiring Tamsin was seeming difficult. Mel is positing that perhaps the alter ego can leave the train. So
3: there we go. I'm going to throw out there <laughs> that it's an agent of Pirapus.
2: An agent. Fair that enough. That can also work. It just seems so weird for the agent to be the one that everybody fears and for him to have, like, this ultimate creepy power. But it's completely not impossible. Yeah. Because uh,
0: that's the other thing that, that that isn't really fully explained to me by uh, in regards to what we saw of Rainer as the whole story. Is that, you know, he, he orders Acacia's hand cut off, supposedly. And, you know, it, he just doesn't seem like that much of a creepy, scoop, spooky guy. But, you know, Acacia and Tamsin were pretty afraid of him. So there does seem to be another party involved in the mix somehow whether it's an alter ego or a completely different person or an agent, there seems to be somebody else involved.
3: Because I think I'd thrown out the agent theory before when we still thought it was the Wanderer mm-hmm. and then Hunan and Munan sh- showed up. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility.
0: <laughs> so the Unamens, I feel like they emerged out of the end of, of, of season three with, the Morrigan declaring a war on humans and, and this and that. But it, that didn't exactly play out the way that I expected it to with with the
3: Unamens. Mm-hmm. We didn't really get a whole lot of the war on humans. We got Kenzie hiding and we got Lauren hiding in their different ways. But yeah, not, that
1: like, really- not like, say, murdering humans in mass or something like well, that.
2: Well, both of them ended up, like, walking into the Unamens' lair, and then the Unamens <laughs> were like, We're gonna put you in a cage! JK! You're totally free to go.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, I had, I get why Kenzie had to be there in Lafayette poke because she snuck in to, to help Dyson, but at the same time... Why did Lauren just stroll in? It, she didn't
2: need to be she, there. She literally scrolled in to make the comment about Dyson's jockstrap and, like, sparked at him. That is, was her, like, entire sole reason for being That's, there. And then, yeah. Because at the beginning of the season, I feel like when they
0: are introduced, they were pretty spooky with the with the death masks and the torture device. I, I found them... And the lot Yeah, I found them fairly threatening and, and malevolent. But they, they lost their oomph. With with Lafea Poke particularly, where she's, they just let two high-priority humans stroll out of their their clutches.
3: And at least a couple high-priority Fae, too. Yeah. hmm
1: And I think because they were, by nature, emotionless, we, from my opinion, I didn't quite know what to do with them. And it took me a while to understand the whole story of, you know, the seed and then Trick stealing the origin seed and Trick not wanting to be a part of the Unamens, but... And then they just get killed by Raynor and Bo, and it's like they have a physical presence, but they didn't actually, like, do anything. Substantially, say, yep. we are establishing the order. And, uh, like you said, it kind of whittled out
2: after a bit. They had a... I, so, what, what, it, what was interesting to me is that they didn't have a really overt function, but they did have a, fairly su- a couple of fairly subtle functions as far as, like, moving the plot along the Unamans existence was one of the things it allowed like dark and light to work together against a common enemy. It was the entirety of kind of plot device that allowed us to have the period piece with the whole health shoe and Dyson's past and all of that. It gave us that really fantastic set. Like for no reason, suddenly they're like in a cave and everything is lit in glowing reds and blacks and there's ooze and there's all these, like it, it kind of gave us that. And Really, ultimately what they do is they stand in for the distillation of fundamentalist ideals. Like this very black and white, you know, no matter what, you must follow these sets of rules that are set down even when they don't make sense. We don't believe in human emotion. We only believe in rules and and set standards. And Trick actually uses the term when he's talking to them about their you know, unbending fundamentalist adherence to rules. And so they have a story function, but when it actually gets down to like writing scenes, people didn't necessarily know what to do with them. And so they, they fizzled a little bit in the individual scenes I felt, but I, but I feel like they really moved the season along.
3: Conceptually, they are sort of perfect for this show because they are, they're antithetical to Bo's existence. You know, Bo is all human emotion and breaking the rules or just disregarding that they exist, (laughs) you know, and they're all rules and no emotions. And, you know, I keep mentioning Bo has the line, something about, um, well, because Trick is explaining the Unamens and says that they are emotionless. And then Bo's kind of like, well, what else is there? (laughs) Because that's all Bo is. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the fact that they're set up as the antithesis of Bo, and then they kind of don't, I don't know, I I think that didn't play out the way I thought it might. I mean, yes, they do have the big showdown with the Unamens and Bo, but, like, I really didn't think it was going to go that way.
0: Well, especially since Bo was coerced into attacking them.
3: Right.
2: Coerced, that's a strong word. Yeah, well, well, she convinced okay. she was... Yeah. I think she, she didn't believe she it. could beat them, and so she wasn't planning on trying, because she's... Sometimes Bo can be dumb, but she ain't stupid. And it wasn't until Rainer convinced her that, hey, you totally can take them. Oh, I can't... Oh, okay, then. Well,
3: because they'd had various encounters prior to that, where basically she walks in there, and they snark at each other. <laughs> Or she snarks at them, and they stand there with expressionless. And anyway, <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know. I I, I just feel like Bo did not intend for for it to go down the way that it did, and it wouldn't have gone down that way if not for Rainer. So that's why I use the word "course" because I feel like Rainer had his own agenda there that he that Bo helped him serve. But right. but yeah, I mean, Bo obviously was not a fan.
3: <laughs> but yeah, the. The slaughtering of the Unamens that I have thoughts on that.
2: (laughs) It was so anticlimactic that it worked for me. Is that (laughs) is that weird? Like I feel like it was a perfect in between. If they had tried to stretch it out, then the fight just would have been like the Garuda almost like eh, okay. But they didn't. It was like Oh, she has foresight, oh they're all dead. Okay, move on. Like and I'm like, oh, that's it? Alright. I I kind of embraced that,
0: to be honest. I actually didn't mind the the way that that story ended up. I just wish it were clearer why Bo and Raynor went there to begin with. That was kind of fuzzy to me. Or how? In waves, like why they went there exactly, and and I wish that were clearer. Mm-hmm. It just kind of seemed like it was manifested because it they wanted the writers wanted it to happen, and it was unclear to me sort of how how they ended up there exactly. So that was my big my big issue with the 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 Unamans thing was that. The battle against them kind of just, oh, okay, it's happening. You know, <laughs> there was lack of buildup because just like complete lack of buildup, which I don't know, didn't work for me for some reason.
3: I don't know. I guess I kind of feel about this the way a lot of people seem to feel about the Lauren versus the Morrigan thing where like, yes, there have been threats made, but they walk up and they walk up into the lair and then suddenly they're attacking them. <laughs> You know what I mean like it's yeah it it feels not provoked enough in a in a sense you know what I mean but you know cuz like the the garuda thing like there's there's a battle there like the world's going to end there's imminent danger imminent danger is the phrase i'm looking for it, there isn't a sense of imminent danger in that scene with the Unamans, to me you know what i mean since they'd like walked in and walked out several times Prior to that,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I was getting at too. Like there was, it just kind of happened. There wasn't really a clear reason to me why it had to happen then, right? So, ju- touching just just briefly on Massimo, we we talked about him before in a, in a half pint. You know, it, he was kind of an interesting big bad to to pit against Bo in that he's had kind of a very a similar experience to her, but but opposite, being sort of a a human raised by Fae. Well, she is a Fae raised by. By humans and how he his past was very different from hers and and she gets to kind of reiterate the importance of the people in her life and and that makes her unique rather than her her powers and so he's kind of an interesting big bad in that regard but I I don't know he wasn't particularly menacing to me
2: yes and no so the Unamans started out as this hyper menacing figure group of figures whatever super menacing, and then they ended up being kind of anticlimactic. Massimo started out the other way. He was almost, he's presented as kind of this druid, he's an enabler, he mixes up potions, and then he kind of becomes this clown figure with really terrible taste in shirts, and he grows into this, like, slightly creepy figure, but even though he's menacing Kenzie, we never really think much will come of it. And so he's almost underestimated until he suddenly has all of the power, like invincibility slash Valkyrie hair, slash papyrus seed, like slash everything. So he he kinda has the opposite trajectory as the Unamens do, where he starts off this absurdist figure that nobody takes seriously, and he ends up being the real threat. So that's kind of interesting. I still didn't find
0: him all that threatening though. <laughs> Even though he had all the power, I don't know, it was I it, to me it was I, where the way the character was was kind of played. Just the the crazy pants never really works for me.
3: The the scenery was the thing in the biggest amount of danger. <laughs> for all the chewing.
0: <laughs> Hashtag #burn. But yeah, again, I I hadn't thought about it that way Mel. I think like theoretically, Massimo's kind of an interesting villain, but in the execution didn't quite work for me as actually being threatening and villainous. So moving into the, the themes of, of season four, I think a big one that we saw was, was memory loss. All of the characters on this show suffered memory loss in some regard. I think we see it have the strongest
2: effect though on Bo and Tamson. Yeah. I think Kenzie, weirdly enough, shows the fewest residual effects as it, and which is interesting. Is it because she's a human? Is it because it's convenient? Is it because she's just got this like, ridiculously tough, street, smart mind. Who knows? But yeah, everyone to some extent or another has some pretty major effects. And I think there's a lot
0: of, like, meditations on memory and you know, what does it mean to not have your memories and does that make you a different person and things like that. You know, Lauren and Crystal have that conversation in Lovers Are Part. Like, if we could forget these things, these bad things that we did, we'd like that. But then what does that leave us? Weirdly post-concussive
2: again, where people will lose multiple months of their life and have to figure out whether that changes their personality or not.
0: So then another big theme was, was captivity versus freedom. We've talked about this a lot, a lot. We see, you know, in, of all the gin joints and let the dark times roll. Those two stories, even the A, you know, the A plots sort or of the Fae of the Week plots were very heavily involved in that theme. And, and several of the characters struggle with this idea throughout the season.
2: I mean, it, we see it literally in a couple of other things. The uh, Dyson in the cage and then Kenzie being in the cage. And then the, you see it literally. I, I'm more of a fan of the metaphors, but we get it both ways. They can have their cake and eat it, too. Yeah, I feel like we see almost all of the
0: characters tied up at some point during the season. There's a lot of them, at least, that are like literally imprisoned
2: during the season. It's true. I'm trying to think if Bo is ever quite... I mean, she is on the train... She-
0: uh she's incapacitated. She's like you paralyzed, go. you know. Oh yeah. And uh with and and the let the dark times roll. Yep. Yeah. So she's not physically bound and but there she was can't a move. Second time.
3: Uh lovers apart, yeah. they lock her up briefly.
0: Yeah, Trick and Hale, I don't think so, but I think all of the other characters we see them literally being imprisoned in some way in the in the season. So that's quite a few. Destiny versus free will is another one, especially at the end of the season we see these prophecies come into play. Which I particularly didn't care for. I, I don't like the idea of, of Bo being prophesied to do things because I want Bo to say, heck with it. I do what I want. I live the life I choose.
2: I really, I love when books slash TV shows deal with prophecy versus free will. But I think that uh, they'll end up coming to that conclusion. Like, Bo kind of goes along with these prophecies. But then that makes them self-fulfilling prophecies because it's her deciding that they're important and going along with them that enables them to be fulfilled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I do think in season five, she'll be like, well, that was dumb. I'm just going to do what I want. Which may end up fulfilling them anyway, in a different way. So then you've got that weird, like, the whole Oedipal idea of when it's prophesied, whether you try to fulfill it or whether you try to avoid it. Either way, you're going to end up bringing about its fulfillment. It's so fascinating. It's so, it's like an omnibus of fascination. I do think that they will continue to address that in Season 5, however. Death and resurrection. So you've got multiple deaths, multiple resurrections. Massimo resurrects. Massimo resurrects once. He's never actually shown to die when Hale is beating him and etc. But it's it's definitely that idea of he just kind of like raises up. So he resurrects. And the way that he talks about him being in the lava
0: pit in in the finale very much sounds like kind of a resurrection you know i burned for 7 days and that you know, was that the I, first right that was
2: definitely the resurrection the first resurrection yeah. so he resurrected at least once possibly twice tamsin resurrected essentially um regenerated resurrected it's kind of that idea you have rainer's metaphorical resurrection is kind of like coming back from the limbo that he's been in for for thousands of years You've got the idea that Kenzie talks about her potential resurrection being brought back from the afterlife. You've got the idea of trying to resurrect the Pericus. And it's just all of these ideas of life and death. Of course, Hale dies and Kenzie dies and people face their immortality and people are killed, mostly secondary characters, but then also Hale. The Morrigan dies, the Morrigan's fae self as it were, is kind of assassinated. So there's definitely all of these themes of life and death and how they're constantly intertwined and how they're constantly being recontextualized, which is something that genre shows can do, which is really interesting that most shows can't really toy with. So, yeah, I thought those themes
0: were were very prevalent. Even with, with Vex's hand, kind of like this idea of death and resurrection.
2: Yep, and, and even like the individual episode plots, like you had the episode plot in... 403. I mean, the, the whole thing with the Jumbie was death, and, I, uh, and the whole thing with um, Marie Laveau. I mean, she was dead, and then you had the I want to say Reavers, not Reavers. Revenants. Revenants, thank you. Yeah, so you had the Revenants, and you had the Jumbie, and you had Marie Laveau, and you had all of these like secondary plots that were maybe B plots or maybe one-offs, but they all dealt with death and resurrection. So it was definitely a theme throughout the whole thing. You had the theme of found family, which I think we've touched on, especially in regards to Tamsin and Kenzie.
0: But Bo repeats it several times throughout the season, you know, they, they, they are my family, and not talking about Trick. And actually, we, I think we see Trick and Bo's relationship become distant in this season. So really, Bo distances herself from her biological family
2: in this season. But, I think she really clung to Trick in the first season. Like, oh, I found someone who's my yeah. biological kin. She clung to, tri- to Trick Trick. And Eva, and she's finally realizing, look, I don't need them. Like, if they're not going to act like my family, then to hell with it. I have this other family. Right. So, yeah, definitely with Bowen, Dyson is even starting to kind of almost grudgingly admit that he's got this new wolf pack, you know, that he is incredibly dependent on. Not just Kenzie, but also mm-hmm. Bo and Lauren and, um, Tamsin.
0: Yeah, like in the, in the finale when he, when he tells Bo, of course, I know you gotta go get Lauren. Like that's, uh, that's a big step for Dyson to be like, she's, she's my friend. I want you to help her. That yep. was a huge step for him.
2: Yeah. So it, it definitely came through for all the characters that, that idea of found family that's kind of been there since the beginning. And then the last theme that I found was just power. Like, the Unamens were after concentrated power. That's how they got where they were. The Pyrrhus, you know, was after power, and Trick was after power, and that's how he got in this mess to begin with. And Massimo, all he wanted was power. And whether it was to prove himself to mommy, or whether it's because he's crazy, or whether it's because it's just human nature, like, power, 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 he wanted power. And one of Trick's beefs with Raynor which may or may not have been valid was that Raynor was after power and that's why he had to banish him and it's just it's all about power and who can get it who cannot and the whole Lauren Ebony thing was about power who had the power in their relationship and so that was in various ways power was a huge theme through the whole season and,
0: and yet we have Kenzie you know powerless human Kenzie being the person who sort of saves the day at the end of the season. Same with Lauren, you know, a powerless human takes down a particularly strong fae, so yeah, definitely that that idea of what does power look like. The,
2: The season had all of the themes that I just talked about were throughout the season, but the arcs are very demarcated, so you have the first arc getting your memory, one episode. You know, the first episode was regaining memory, and then You had this mini-arc of, like, let's get Bo back, and that kind of stretched from 101 to 103. And you had three episodes that were kind of just spinning their wheels almost. We're wandering around, and clues from Bo's train ride will just kind of throw themselves at our feet, and we'll have these other B-plots in the meanwhile to distract us. And so that was really kind of from 104 to 107. And then we've got this one really, really genre-specific, trope-specific episode, which I thought I would hate, but I ended up loving, which is Groundhog Fei 408. This slightly unrelated episode, and all these characters get to process their life and where they are in their relationships and where they are in regards to their guilt and their friendships and their psyches and all this other thing. Uh, And then we finally kickstart the -the get-to-the-train plot, and we get a mythology dump, which all happens in one episode, 409. So this is really what kickstarts what we thought we saw coming from the end of Season 3. So all this stuff happens. Then we have one episode where we actually find out what happened on the train. That's half the episode. And then the B-plot is again completely unrelated. Delightful, but unrelated while Lauren and Kenzie and Dyson comport with mermaids. And then in the last three episodes, again, just all really concentrated. We bring the gang back together, we discuss all the prophecies, we raise all the stakes, we kill off a character, we endanger everyone, we have more prophecies, we save the world, and we get all of these other new mysteries, who is the Pirapus, why did Raynor die, what was the point of any of this, just kind of dumped, and here we go, and the end. So that is essentially all of the miniature arcs in a nutshell.
0: And I don't know if that really works for me. A lot of the action happening on at the back end of the season, I know that that has been a trend on the show, but I really wish they would spread out that stuff more.
2: I feel like they thought they were spreading it out because we do get the song that jolts Bo's memory and we do get the introduction to the hell shoe and we do get kind of these little breadcrumbs scattered throughout S- some of the episodes, even earlier in the season, but I still don't think it was enough to compensate for the incredible mythology dump that happened.
3: Hmm. I agree with you. I think more stuff needed to happen a little sooner because, yeah, the the whole, and, and especially revealing that the Wanderer, oh, well, you know, Rainer, isn't the shadowy presence that they thought he was. And, like, oh, it turns out there's a Pirapis. Because, <laughs> let's be honest, the Pirapis kind of came out of nowhere. Since that was the shadowy figure from the end of Season 3, it turns out. And, again, I don't mind stuff taking a while to play out, but... I think I don't know. I'm not crazy about Rayner being a red herring. Essentially, you know what I mean, or at least seeming to be a red herring at this point.
2: I feel like it's almost a red herring that Rayner was a red herring. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure
0: if that's. Melody is doubling down on the complicated stuff. <laughs>
3: And and it could be. I mean, I don't know, but that's... We think that Rainer didn't mean anything, but we're going to learn next season that he did. Everything. Yeah,
0: he was the most important. Right. Thank you again to Melanie Killingsworth for being our guest on this episode. You can go check out Melanie's writing about Lost Girl over at melsbells.wordpress.com. That's M-E-H-L-S. B-E-L-L-S, melsbells.wordpress.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Melsbell. She is prone to rants about soccer and filmmaking and other things, and it's often quite amusing. So thank you again to her for joining us. And we would love to hear your thoughts about the big bads of season four, the multiple, multiple big bads, as well as if you found any interesting themes that we didn't discuss, or you had other ideas about themes We'd love to hear your ideas. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at drinksatthedoll.com slash 49. You can send us an email to feedback at drinksatthedoll.com or you can send us a voice message by clicking on the send voicemail tab at the right side of the website. I'm so glad you could join us for drinks at the doll. My name is Stephanie. Thanks for listening. Cheers.